The Sharpened Artist Color Pencil Podcast. Inspiration and innovation. We're talking everything you want to know about this medium that we love so much. And we're your hosts, John Middick and Barb Sodiropoulos. Hey there, welcome back to the show. My name is John Middick of SharpenedArtist.com, and I'm joined by my co-host, Barb Sodiropoulos. Barb, how are you today? Doing great, John. How are you? I am awesome. So Barb and I are talking to our guest today. I'm so excited about this because I think that if you've not heard of the book that he's written, he wrote he wrote one book. He may have written more that's for you, but he wrote one book that is specifically for us as artists, I feel like. Um, he is not a color pencil artist. He's he's not a fine art artist either, but he's a writer and he's an author. Um, what you've written like um, five books or so, I think, Jeff. Yep. Something like that. And he wrote the book, Real Artists Don't Starve. So Jeff Goings, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, John. Hey, Barb. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So Jeff is a best-selling author. He's a podcaster. He's a blogger, uh, speaker. Um, but he wrote this particular book. And when I first read it, I was just like, yes, that, that, that he just said right there. That's it. That's exactly right. <laughs> so for a long time, I've been looking at that book and thinking a lot about it. And Barb, I know that it's been a sort of a transformational kind of thing for you as well. There's so many great stories in the book and from the Renaissance and different examples in the book, I think it's just constructed really, really well. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, lots of quotable lines in there. I, I made notes as I went through the book and <laughs> I kept writing things down. I'm like, yes, need to write that one. That's a good one. That's another good one. So you, uh, you, you definitely found a lot of really great, uh, sentiments and thoughts of surrounding artists and working artists and artists mm -hmm. making a living. And I think I'm really excited for the audience to hear what you have to say today and talk a little bit more about your book. All right. So what we like to do on here, Jeff, is typically we just kind of rewind the tape a little bit. So if you can just give us a quick uh, overview of you, why you decided to pursue a creative life and what some of your more recent creative endeavors have been. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I love talking to real artists. That's um, fun. Uh, so I... Um, I've been creative my whole life. I don't, I don't know that I ever chose to do that as much as it seemed to choose me. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a friend who says that uh, he envisions his future barreling towards him. You know, it, it is this thing that is coming at you. And, and that has certainly seemed true of, of my life. I, I've always made things. Uh, mm -hmm. and I actually started out as, as an artist, as a, I love to draw. I drew uh, cartoons of um, Garfield. I, yeah. I had I had a friend who drew Odie, and I drew Garfield, and we would make comic strips together in grade school and middle school. Oh wow! Yeah, and um, actually, when I was in middle school, my mom enrolled me in a college level art class for like like a summer class that you could take. And I, I went there and we, you know, drew with like graphite and we did charcoal. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we did, I don't know if we actually did any like 
oil or acrylic paint. I don't think we did. I think it was, I think we just did um, composition. I think we just drew stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and that experience was so discouraging for me that I didn't completely give up on art, as it were, but I gave up on the idea that I could or should uh, draw things. And I loved drawing. And, yeah. and I think that probably had more to do with me than it had to do with the art teacher, if I'm being fair. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a discouraging process because most of my experience, I mean, I grew up in a small town in northern Illinois, mm -hmm. um, about 1,100 people, Waterman, mm -hmm. Illinois. And um, that, uh, you know, it was like art was was done a certain way and it was done by the art teacher and and she it was always a she uh was the one who um told you if your work was any good and i actually had um a a teacher um for the most part i didn't like art class uh but there was there was a former art teacher that was my homeroom teacher in 7th grade and her name was mrs frankel and she changed my life and in seventh mm. grade, um, and I'll wrap the story up because I know you said briefly, you know, no, tell, no, tell no, me no. about you. Hey, like, no, no, no worries. Let me, let me, no, stories let, are great. Let, me, let me spend 20 <laughs> minutes telling you about when I was 13 years old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. No, this is, um, <laughs> this will be a, a 30 part, uh, podcast. I can't remember <laughs> if, if this ever showed up in real artists don't starve or not, but it was one of those stories that probably should have and i wrote it early on in the writing of this book and ah, gotcha. and the story was basically this um in seventh grade uh we had this assignment which was um you you went home and you watched the news and, and you know how this was guys um you know whatever it was 25 years ago right you would go home you would watch the news it came on at a certain time and you better not miss it and we right. would take, we would watch the six o'clock news and I would take notes and then you would come back the next day and you would tell your other, uh, classmates what had happened. It was just a way to like get engaged in the yeah. world, I guess. Sure. And we did, Coming we did this every, sing, every single day. We had a class of maybe 30 students. And so every, every student, you know, did this multiple times throughout the year. And most kids would come with their three ring, you know, spiral notebooks. Um, and, wow. and they would read, serious. yeah, they would read the news. Um, and I asked Mrs. Frankel, my teacher, if I could do it differently. And she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, um, well, I have a camcorder at home and I want to perform the news. And she said, okay, I love it. And so I went home and I, um, put on one of my dad's suits. I'm 13 years old, you know, this big old suit. <laughs> And I slicked back my hair and I, I watched the news and then I performed it and I hit play on the camcorder and I actually played multiple characters. I was, I was the, um, the anchor man, but I was also the anchor woman and then I was the weather man. And so we would cut to different characters Amazing. and I would have a conversation with myself <laughs> and the weather man, um, you know, pointed to a weather map, which, which was a picture that my three or four year old, uh, sister drew at the time, <laughs> you know, just this like random thing. Right. And I just had fun with it. Um, yeah. and I went back to school the next day 
Uh, and you remember um, where you had these like little cassette tapes from your camcorder yes. that you would have to put into the large VHS like adapter that you would put into a VCR. I have to yep. explain what this is to an entire generation or two of young yeah. people. Yeah, uh, but you guys get it. And yeah. and and yeah. we wheeled in this contraption, right? This tower, if you remember these. Um, and, right. and it was literally like a tower with a square television that was bungee corded on top yeah. to hold it together with a VCR. It was it, a tower. It, it always felt like there was some Velcro involved there, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was yeah. like the least secure thing ever. It's like yeah, ready right. to – I believe I saw this in like a Die Hard movie, and this was how yeah. uh, Bruce Willis <laughs> blew up an entire building, right? And you wheeled yeah, this in, and we put the VHS in and hit play. And, and the whole class watched this happen and, and I was just grinning ear to ear cause I just thought it was the <laughs> coolest thing ever. Right. I was watching this thing that I had made on display for everybody else. And, um, and as it was happening, some of my students, some of my fellow students started snickering and laughing and whispering to each other. And every 13 year old knows the difference between people laughing because you said something entertained. funny, like laughing yeah, yeah. with you, with you or, at or you. laughing at you. And this really? was the latter. This was the mean kind of laughter. And I felt uh, myself start to get really small in the chair and, and just wanting to disappear. Oh, no. Because, you yeah. know, um, in middle school especially, um, you don't want to stand out too much. Like you just right? want to get through it. And, yeah. And... As this was wrapping up, I thought, oh man, I, I went too far. Like in my effort to do something cool, I would, I cared too much. Right. Cause part of being cool is not caring a lot. Right. And <laughs> as this was, you know, everybody was laughing the teacher had to, you know, quiet the, the class and she came over and whispered to me. Um, and she said, uh, that was the most amazing thing I have ever seen. Wow. And wow. Um, and that sort of instilled in me this idea that's been true for the rest of my life ever since, um, which is, uh, when you make something, you are actually not making something for most people. Mm -hmm. You are almost always making something for a handful of people who will get it and the rest will not, right? Whether you're Picasso mm. or Michelangelo yep. or uh you know this graphic designer down the street right you yeah. are uh making things at least i have made things most of my life that most people didn't get and laughed at or dismissed or said that's not for me uh but every once in a while there's somebody who comes along and goes that was amazing right and so i i you know, my story is I played with a professional band for a while. I've done public speaking. I got really into acting for a season. Um, it's always been a bunch of different creative activities. I love the mm -hmm. arts. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, and I wrote this book, Real Artists Don't Starve, because I wanted to speak to all of these creative people that I had met or knew. And I wanted to tell them that there are two stories about creativity I see happening in our culture today. One is you're going to starve, kid, right? 
And when I was touring professionally with a band after college, uh, that's what people told me. They said, do this while you're young, because when you get older, you won't be able to do this. You'll have to get a real job. People like adults told me this, you know, when I was 24 <laughs> years old and I believed them, I agreed with mm -hmm. them. And so, you know what I did? Mm -hmm. I went and got a real job and, mm -hmm. and tucked this artistic intuition deep down inside of me. And every once in a while, I'd feel it kind of stir up. And after seven or eight years of denying that, it just would not go away. And so I started a blog, eventually quit my job and became a professional writer. And I've been doing that for about 12 years now. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I feel like I can relate to that story so much. I, I, I also played in a band. I wouldn't say I did it professionally, but it was definitely what I wanted to do as a career and to the point of not going to my career day in grade 12 because i was like no i'm gonna oh, be a rock star it's fine that was i got dream. this and like yeah, yeah 100 and and it's so interesting to um you know what you were saying about how you, you you always had this feeling inside of you and i think i think anyone who's creative um if you try to snuff that out or if you try to sort of um ignore it it will find ways to kind of creep back into your life where You'll always have this sense of feeling like something's not right or some, you're not really living authentically mm -hmm. somehow. And I think uh, it's interesting, too. I think a lot of artists do have those interests in different areas of the arts. And, uh, and you know, certainly you've, you've kind of dipped your toe into a lot of different areas of it. But I think, you know, that that's exactly it, right? Like, I think as a creative person, there's you're, you're sort of open to all of those things, whether you're good at all of them or not is a whole other thing. But you know, it's, you still feel soul, like you have to, you know. yeah, you just feel like you have to pursue it in yeah. some way to express yourself that way. Otherwise it, it, you know, you feel like you're just living less of a life. Yeah. Somehow. There's this concept that I stumbled upon in real artists don't starve, which is a little academic, um, but it was really interesting to me. And it was, um, uh, you guys might be familiar with this, but there is, um, there is an interesting and clear correlation between ADHD and, and what we call creativity or creative people, and, and, which is mm -hmm. to say uh, many, many creative people tend to suffer, suffer from ADD or ADHD symptoms. Um, and, and there's a fascinating body of psychological research around this. And I, I spoke with mm -hmm. one of the professors in uh, Chicago who was spearheading some of this. And the term that she used was a leaky filter. Uh, hmm. And it, and what that basically means is that you can't turn off all the stimuli. But there was, there, there's, there's an interesting thing that happens, which is that you're interested in a lot of things until you lock in on something. And then you become hyper-focused on a single activity. And I would, uh, the yeah. most creative person I know is, is this way. It's not, certainly not me, but it's a friend of mine who's a photographer slash fine artist here in Nashville. And he's just kind of all over the place. And then when he finds his thing, he becomes obsessed with it to the point that he goes, no, everything else that I've ever done is trash. And this is what I'm fully focused on. <laughs> and, and that's funny. And I've known him long enough to know, cool, there's going to be another thing in about five years. Um, right. and, and it seems to me that, that the difference between, I mean, as you said, Barb, it doesn't mean you're good at it. Well, of course not any new thing you start, you're typically not that good at it, but what an artist can do is they can see lots of possibilities and lots of different things. And what we call good artists are those who are able to lock in on something long enough 
to get good at it, to earn the attention uh, of other people. And of course, you don't have to do that, but that often is the difference between success and failure is that you stick with it long enough, uh, put in enough hours and attention to get good at it that, that people care about what you're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, I, but again, not to talk about myself here, but like just, I, I remember even when I, when I played in a band, it was very much, that's all I did. And I actually didn't right. really do a lot of artwork at the time. Like that was the thing that I was focusing on and it was all about the music and all about writing. And I find now that I, my focus is art. I have a hard time focusing yeah, on same. music. Like it's almost like that's more of, of a backpedaled thing for me. And, and it's it's like I want to be able to do both at a high level at the same time, but it's almost like my brain won't let me do both at the same time, which is kind of interesting. But I have these grand plans of eventually getting back to the music. But it's uh, I think, you know, there's definitely some truth to that. I think just the idea that, you know, you're hyper focusing on one thing or, or another and giving all of your kind of creative energy to that thing and whatever particular. Yeah, moment. yeah that's. I mean, that concept yeah. is um, what I call the portfolio life, that you are sort of accumulating different experiences and interests and then cultivating those into a body of work. And you or anyone listening beats themselves up, as many creative people I know do, about being distracted. Uh, know that you're in good company because um, somebody who was um, <laughs> sort of notorious for doing that was Michelangelo. And uh he he did a couple of things. He um he he said this is the thing that I'm doing and I'm not doing anything else and all my other work is is now dead. And he was very very stubborn about whatever thing he was working on and when opportunity came his way, uh he took it. Uh meaning he started out mm -hmm. wanting to be a sculptor. He was like, I'm going to be a sculptor. Mm -hmm. Sculpture is the greatest art. In fact, he got in a fight with Leonardo da Vinci, who was, um, you know, uh, basically twice his age, right? He was a generation ahead of mm -hmm. him. And they got into this big debate. Michelangelo was this uh, young, uh, uh, audacious kid. And Leonardo da Vinci was Leonardo da Vinci. And, and they got into a fight and, um, and it ended up in a uh, public contest a public art contest between leonardo and michelangelo and um uh, michelangelo criticized leonardo and said you can paint anything but it takes a real artist to sculpt something and he liked he like and leonardo was like well you can't sculpt the sky right so painting is the greater art because you can create anything Michelangelo basically said the opposite. Sculpture is the greater art because it's contained. There, you know, like you have to work with the earth because it's coming out of out of the ground, so to speak. And so they ended up having this. And Michelangelo said, "I could do your job. It's easy, right? Like I could paint just as well as you could." Again, you know, kind of a in your face kid. And um, and so they end up having this public mural contest where they paint these murals. Can you imagine downtown Florence in fifteen hundreds? They're in this contest against each other and Leonardo wins. He beats Michelangelo, but they both, they both create these amazing things. But what happens is Michelangelo has been coaxed out of his interest, his core area of discipline as a sculptor. Uh, and mm. now everybody knows Michelangelo is a painter and guess what happens shortly after that? The Pope gives him a call on his cell phone 
and says, hey, there's this ceiling that we need (laughs) you to paint. And Michelangelo paints the Sistine Chapel because he got in a contest uh, with Leonardo and loses. So, I mean, there's lots of lessons there. One, Mm -hmm. don't be afraid to branch out when the opportunity comes your way. He he despised Mm. painting. He was a grumpy guy. He despised Mm. painting the Sistine Chapel, the world's, arguably the world's most famous ceiling, right? The the, God creating everything, God, you know, the the fingers, God touching Adam's finger, you know? Everybody knows it. That would not have existed if uh, Leonardo, you know, didn't have the sort of egotistical, uh, you know, contest with, uh, if Michelangelo didn't have this egotistical contest with Leonardo and, yeah. and if he didn't fail, right. So there's lots of things involved there, but, um, yeah, he went from being a sculptor to being a painter to becoming an architect. And at the end of his life, he was a construction foreman and basically a CEO, which a lot of people don't realize, but that's another story. But that's kind of interesting though, because it also kind of helps you to understand his humility also then uh, he lost, but he sort of concedes and says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to paint is what it seems like. Yeah. As well. So that, that's he was, he too. was, um, he was a form of humble, I suppose. Uh, Michelangelo, <laughs> um, I mean, I spoke to his, like the, the leading living biographers he i would say he was willing well well, about the narrative though that he talked about him i mean that he sort of wove that he was oh this this poor dude you know i mean that's we we can talk about that a little later too yeah he was an interesting cat i mean mean, the the professor sounds like he was conflicted you know he sounds like he was an artist yeah he had he he was very ambitious yeah he was (laughs) a, a bit prideful at times um and uh, and he knew that 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 he had this greatness that he wanted to share with the world, and was kind of annoyed mm-hmm. when he had to do something other than do the thing that he wanted to do. And I, every artist I know feels this way. Their life is in conflict with their art. And most of Michelangelo's greatest works were the things that he was called upon to do, that in some ways he resented. And and yet he worked with those commissions mm-hmm. and infused them with himself. And I think that's always the dance that we're doing. We're always mm-hmm. dancing between I got to do this for money and this is my art. And mm-hmm. don't mistake what's happening here, which is that in that dance your art is being produced. Your art actually is the result of that tension. Mm-hmm. I need to do this for money versus here's right. what I really want to do. That is that is where the juice is found. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, even at, like as a commission artist, I, I mean, I do a fair amount of commission work, but typically the commissions I do are like, they're not all the same. Like I'm not only doing portraits, I'm not only doing, you know, pet portraits or something like that. And what's funny is I find that when I, I actually really enjoy taking on those challenges sometimes, or I've learned to take on, uh, enjoy taking on those challenges because I find I tend to get people coming to me for things that are just either somebody else couldn't do or it's a really weird request. Like one of the recent ones I did was um, a guy I went to high school with wanted to do um, a custom coat of arms for his family. And so they had all this imagery that they wanted to combine together. And he had originally gone to his tattoo artist to do it. And for whatever reason, they weren't, they weren't happy with where they were going with it. So he came to me 
to to kind of do a new version of it. And and what was interesting is like you're like, yeah, it's commission work, it's whatever it was outside of what I normally do, but there was this this whole creative challenge to it that actually helped yes. inform some things I did later or just the idea of like challenging yourself to do something with different composition. Like it may not be something that's in your wheelhouse, but I think creatively it's good to step outside of those boundaries and do these projects that maybe you think you don't want to do sometimes. Cause if you're, if you're able to take whatever the learning experience is from it, you can really push yourself forward because you're, you're now taking on something that, that isn't like, you're not just staying in a little box, right? Like you're not just sitting there only doing the same thing yeah. and never pushing yourself to go forward yeah, and do something um, different. It was the historian Will Durant who said, nothing is new except arrangement. And and so everything that you're doing or that you have done is preparing you for what's to come. And I think the immature artist um, denies that reality. They go, ah, uh, that's that, that that that's not me, you know. Um, Kanye West right now says he's embarrassed of all of his previous work. Um, and I go, well, cool. Like I think you're at the I think I oh, think God. you're at the equivalent of Bob Dylan's <laughs> um, Christian phase, right? And you know that's cool. Elvis had that phase. The Beatles, you know, kind of dance with that a little bit. You know, they all have their version of going. Oh, this is what it's really about. And the mature artist, mm -hmm. if if they're lucky to live long enough, um, they find a way to go. Oh, here's here's what I thought I was trying to do. And here's what I did. And they bring it all together and they go, oh, it all belongs. It was all me trying to figure out uh, what I, I had to say. Now, one of the the last works that Michelangelo did um, is, is a collection of slaves. Um, and you can see them. They're in the Louvre. And I think I think there's a couple at the, the Art Institute of Chicago. At least I think there was last time I was there. Um, but there's a collection of, um, slaves that are, that are sort of coming out of this. It's a very rough sculpture. It's a piece of sculpture. Um, and, and they're coming out of the marble, but it looks as if it's like half finished. And, um, and, and, and this is Michelangelo's testament to his own art, which is I'm trying to create something out of the roughness of reality. And I'm intentionally going to leave it a little bit rough hmm. um, as sort of a statement. And um, it, it looks almost as if it was like abandoned, right? And you find out this is what he was actually mm -hmm. intending to do. Uh, you know, anyway, all that to say, um, everything we do is, is a part of our body of work. It all belongs. It's all teaching us mm -hmm. something about what we're trying to say. And I think most artists, if they're being honest, um, are are creating things as a way of understanding themselves and they're doing it on display for others to see as you said earlier john it's, it's sort of an expression of your soul and i would say that art is a conversation mm -hmm. with yourself about yourself and you often find mm -hmm. yourself doing things saying things creating things and you go oh that's what i think that's what that's what's in this you know space called my soul this cavern of you know, so many surprising things. I have a friend who teaches uh, sort of like meditation and mindfulness retreats where he uses creativity as a tool for people to get in connection with, with themselves. And, and he says that, you know, the things that you create 
seem to come from nowhere. They come from nothing. And that's kind of a wonderful mm-hmm. mystery to, to dance in because uh, I may write a line and go, mm-hmm. I have no idea where that came from. I didn't like think about it two minutes ago and, and write it. When I'm writing and I get into a state of flow, at a certain point, stuff just comes. And mm-hmm. that's a really fun place to get into. And most artists I know live for that. And music was a very pure expression of that. And and Barb, not to embarrass you as the, you know, I play music professionally. I made $8,000 that year. Uh, yeah, that was a very sustainable <laughs> career. Um, yeah, we got it. We got to this point as a band where we would play on stage. We played every day. We played a lot of shows. Uh, I mean, we would play five to 10 shows a week. Sometimes we play five shows in one day at the same location, just wow. set after set after set. It was our wow. equivalent, you know, of the, the Beatles summer in Hamburg where they'd play eight hours a night. Um, and, and <laughs> you do, you do get into this state where I remember looking at the other guitarist or the drummer and we wouldn't, we wouldn't say anything. We wouldn't wink. We wouldn't have a special code. We would just know that we were going to play that chorus again. You know, it, it was just understood mm. that there's there's a sense of mm. I know what's going to happen next because we're the music is being played through us at this point. And you would sing a line or you would yeah. play something that you had literally never played before, and it just you were discovering it for the first time. And it was it's it's a wonderful place to get to. Yeah, that that kind of makes me think about. The fact that, I mean, you talk about this in your book a little bit about creating in like this uh, solitary place. You're you're just this lone artist doing things stowed away, maybe in your right. basement or somewhere. And then you contrast that, though, and you talk about how that we need patrons, right? And you talk about how that, you know, you need to be able to expose yourself to someone or a group of someone's to be able to expand that talent or you even talk about vouching for an artist. The the one thing I guess I wanted to ask you about is like there's social media that kind of plays into this a little bit, right? If we can just shift sure. for a moment and talk about that. Um, when you wrote the book, I mean, TikTok wasn't here. Uh, and there's so many other, I mean, we could talk about a lot of right. other platforms that have even now come and gone you know they saw their their heyday for a moment um but i mean do you feel like that yeah i mean (laughs) do you feel like though that that um how how does social media fit into that when you talk about describing this validation in terms of having uh maybe a mentor or patrons right how does social media kind of fit into so art is a conversation that someone has with themselves in front of other people that is how mm-hmm. I understand art today. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so without an audience, it's not art. And people go, oh, what are you talking about? I, I create art for, yeah, yeah. It's art therapy. Of course, right? wonderful. <laughs> That's Call that therapy, yeah. call that a diary yeah, or yeah. a journal. Art becomes right, art right. the minute it is shared with someone else. That is actually why we create. And every artist who tells me they create only for themselves, I don't believe you. I don't actually believe you because as soon as you create for yourself, there is this impulse. There is this instinct to want to share it with someone. I'm not talking about becoming famous. I'm just going, 
I made this. I made this. Right. Do you want to see it? Right. It's like uh, my daughter, um, she goes to a Montessori school and they have this um, this table called the light table where light shines through these kind of transparent pieces of paper and, and, and she traces different animals. And every day she comes home and she goes, do you want to see what I drew on the light table? And I go, yes. And it feels so good to share something you created with someone else. I think mm -hmm. that's just how life goes. Life wants to beget more life mm -hmm. and it's wonderful. And art imitates life as we all know. Um, so, mm -hmm. uh, I was really careful when I wrote Real Artists Don't Starve, um, to make it a principle-based book. In fact, all of my work, I try mm -hmm. to, I try to see the principle because I know the tactics and strategies change fairly regularly. Oh yeah. 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 And you made it timeless by not doing that, by not talking about a particular That's my platform. intent. And you go, here, here's how this works. Yeah. And now you can take this in five or 10 right. or 15 years and apply it to whatever landscape is happening. Um, yeah, yeah. so, um, there's a few things that I think, uh, every artist needs. And I use Michelangelo as one of the key, um, archetypes to emulate, but, but I, I tried to make, um, a point that we see these patterns repeated over and over again throughout history. Um, and, and they're repeating again now in a way that is very democratized, right? Where you can actually find a patron and build your own audience and get in and get your work yeah. in front of a lot of people without getting lucky. And right. the, you know, Michelangelo in many cases got lucky. He was very, very good. And then, but there weren't hundreds mm -hmm. of him, you know, at the time. Now he right. did because of what he did create a possibility that became more normative during the Renaissance, which is he made it possible for someone to become an aristocrat, through art, he became a wealthy artist, which had actually never happened before. Leonardo, as great as he was, was quite broke yeah. um, and, and did not become right. a high standing member of society. Michelangelo was a millionaire. Anyway, all that to say, um, he had a few things going for him. He had the power of a network, right? He was well networked mm -hmm. um, and he had patrons. He had people who were willing to pay him money to create work. Um, and, and he had people who knew who he was, right? So you've got, those are actually kind of three different social groups. You've got peers that can help you get more work. You've got customers, clients, whatever you want to call them, people who are willing to, right. um, you know, pay you for your work. And then you've got a lot of people willing to talk about you. You need all of those things today as an artist. Now, I think artists misunderstand these things, right? So going on social media right now, whether it's TikTok or Twitter or Instagram or whatever, and just going, here's my stuff, go buy it. That's a bad way to build an audience right. and it's a bad way to sell your stuff. It's a, a one-way one -way conversation, conversation. <laughs> and, it, and it's a binary outcome, yes or no. Yeah. What I yes, think is, is right. really interesting, especially with, say, TikTok, is to... Austin Kleon calls it showing your work. I call it practicing in public. Um, I learned that from Seth Godin. <laughs> he wrote a blog post years ago uh, mm. called Hawker's Block, where he says no one ever gets talker's block. Uh, but we but we but we say that we get mm -hmm. writer's block. He said you should write the way that you talk, which is that you should do it oh, often yeah. and in public. And I was like, 
Oh, yeah. I remember that. He's written yep, about that yep. too, I believe, in a book or maybe. Yeah, one he of talked his, about it yeah. in uh, The cool. Icarus Deception, which was his book about one of his books about okay, art. Yeah. And, um, right. Yeah. So find a place that you like where you can do your work in front of people over and over and over again in hopes of building an audience. An audience is not necessarily people who will pay you, but they will talk about you, right? Uh, again, to go back to Godin, who, who is a person that I learned a lot of marketing from, um, in kind of this new yeah. world, you know, marketing is not advertising marketing is getting ideas to spread. So as an artist, you need to mm -hmm. get people watching you do your work in front of other people. So that's kind of like practical thing. Number one, find a place that works well for you to do yeah. that. Right. And the best social medium for you is the one that you enjoy practicing on or, or can find a way to enjoy it. So I don't like TikTok. Maybe eventually I will, I will find a way to enjoy TikTok, you know, or Instagram reels or whatever. As a writer, I like, um, I, I feel like a good place to practice my art in front of other people and get feedback on it is, um, uh, actually, I enjoy writing long form articles on Facebook. I don't enjoy much about Facebook, but it gets like that gets good play. Mm. And then writing shorter mm -hmm. Instagram captions and and seeing what connects with people. Um, and 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 I write poems mm. too, and I, and I post them on Instagram. There's a huge community of poets on Instagram. Um, so I think you got to find a place to practice in public that you actually enjoy, where you can get feedback. Uh, and then you, then you have to find people who are willing to help you find other work. That's a network that often happens offline or in much smaller social circles. And I don't think there's a right or wrong tool for that. Uh, but that's, that's happening mm -hmm. in some sort of community. Um, and then there's the people who actually pay you for your work. And those people, um, might be somewhere else. In my experience, I mean, because most of what I do, like to make money right now, is I'm a ghostwriter, and so, and that's very similar as mm -hmm. you said, Barb, to like commissioned work. I'm a writer, but I'm doing something very specific for somebody else, right? And I'm able to express myself, kind of, right? Like, and and I learn from every book that I ghostwrite, and and inevitably there's something that I want to do that the client doesn't want to do, and that is so frustrating. And I take that frustration, I just go, I go, cool, that. <laughs> That's what, that's my work. That's not their work, but I've got sort of yeah. three, three modes of expression and, and they, they, they're, they're a Venn diagram. There are three circles that overlap, but they don't completely overlap. Meaning I have my audience, right? And those people don't typically pay me money in terms of the work that I'm doing right now, but they help me find mm -hmm. work and they help me express myself. And that's valuable to me. Uh, then I have my network, which is basically peers and and past clients who refer mm -hmm. work to me and then i have the actual people who will pay me lots of money to write them a book and your mm -hmm. job i think as an artist is to manage those three circles in a way that is manageable to you and interesting to you without ever assuming they're one and the same and so again thinking immature versus mature right. an immature artist goes on tiktok and says Here's my art, buy my art, buy my art, buy my art. It's, you know, kind of old school advertising. And we all know that doesn't work anymore. You've got to uh, right. build a community, connect with people. And you have to understand that the value of that community is not necessarily that 
all those people or even most of those people are going to pay you, uh, but they can give you feedback and they can help you find the people who will pay you. And that used to be the job of a patron. I think um, you can still find those people, you know, um, uh, those sources, mega sources of referral. Uh, but uh, but it's it's a bit it's not like one rich dude anymore. And, it, you know, and, and and in the Renaissance, it was no, one right. rich They're... man is what it was. Right. It's, it's a bit more diffused. Right. And so you've got probably a community of patrons. Yeah. You've got your patrons. You've got kind of your network of peers. And then you've got your audience, right? And all of those kind of fit together in, mm -hmm. in a way that allows you to hopefully do your work for a long time. I think that's an important distinction to make, too. Like, one of the things I think people have a misconception about with social media, especially, is this idea that if they have a large following that that's also going to equate to a yeah. dollar amount and that's not always the case and i think the way you positioned it is actually it's really great because it's this idea of okay yeah you could have this large social media following but all they're doing in a in a, in a roundabout right. way is essentially vouching for you in terms of your popularity which then maybe gets a, um you know a company to look at you a little bit more because they're like okay well this person has an audience and they have an influence and whatever but again you're, you're right in saying that that doesn't translate to those people paying you. I think there's, you know, there's lots of studies that were done on the actual mass of like the conversion rate of however many followers you have versus when you actually run an ad and like what that actually translates to dollar wise. And it's extremely low. So I think, I mean, and then, you know, don't even factor in the fact that like with algorithms and stuff, you know, there's only a percentage of those people that are even seeing your posts. So. I think, you know, that it's really important for people to understand that concept of like, you can amass this big following, but like, don't think that it's going to now right. all of a sudden make you a millionaire no. somehow, because you still have to do the work. You still have to have, you know, these connections of people who are, who are exactly like you said, your network who are of people who are actually right. getting you the work and the people that actually want to pay you for what you're doing, like legitimately want to pay you and aren't just there to kind of observe and, and sort of, uh, 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 I yeah, guess, right. And, and you're doing um, I mean, think time. of like Justin Bieber, um, who I, I didn't think to put in the book, but that would have been a good case study um, because it's an it's kind of an older <laughs> story now. But the principles still work, which is um, use social media or whatever tools are available to you. But but think of social media as the equivalent of a street performer. Nobody goes on Twitter going, yeah. I hope I get to buy something today, right? Like nobody goes on social media to buy right, stuff. Right. Uh, they go because they're bored. Yeah. Now I bought lots of stuff from like, well, not lots of stuff, but some stuff from like Instagram ads, right? I, I, got, a <laughs> I got a cocktail shaker mm -hmm. that doesn't yeah. make my hands cold because I could never find a good one even at like a liquor store. And it was a $25 thing. And it was amazing. And I saw it on Instagram ad. Um, but it is the equivalent of street performance which is to say it is they like the lowest of the low nobody walks down a street going going oh i hope i get to give money to a stranger today so it's where you start right, right? it's where you start but probably where you yeah. don't want to stay you don't want to <laughs> stay on the corner fifth and broadway you know playing tom petty covers right. Uh, you want to be playing in, in Nashville. You want to be playing the Ryman Auditorium or the Bridgestone Arena or Nissan Stadium or whatever. And, and so social media is a place to start, but it's not where you want to end. So think of Justin Bieber who used YouTube. I mean, he, we forget that he got discovered on YouTube. And, and what happened? Well, he got discovered by Usher. That's a patron, right? Who said, 
oh, I'm mm-hmm. going to vouch for this kid, bring him into the inner circle, and yeah. um, and you know, and then it was game over. So we use these tools to get in front of a lot of people, so that the one or two people who have the influence that that we need that we can borrow from them, um. To, to reach the real people that we need. So for example, I'm on this podcast. This is a form of outreach that I do. I do it for a couple of reasons. One, it's fun to talk. Two, I get to sort of share my ideas and go, oh, maybe this is an idea for the next book that I'm going to do. Uh, and then three, the way my business works is I only need like one or two people uh, you know, per month to go, oh, he mentioned Ghostwriter. I need somebody to write a book for me. And and. And so I'll reach a lot of people in hopes of finding the next client, right? And and that doesn't even have to be the thing that we talk about. Um, and so we reach mm-hmm. a lot of people, not because we all need them to throw pennies at us, right? And that's fine for a season. You reach mm-hmm. a lot of people, if you're being smart and strategic, to find the the next person who can help you take the next step. And it's not like, it's typically not, um, the rags to riches story. Usher's going to watch your YouTube video and you're going to become a millionaire right. tomorrow. It's like this person gets you right. into the next room, gets you to the next level that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get to without them. Yeah, and yeah. believe it or not, boys and girls, the world still works that way in it many works. respects. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. My daughter's going to see Justin Bieber tonight. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, funny. So it's this ubiquity, though, that happens, you know, over time. But I like the way you describe it, where there's there's this Venn diagram kind of um, way of of thinking about it. But you see so many people, especially in the fine art community and this small colored pencil community that we're a part of, they're not using it strategically in that way. I don't even think it's just social. Casting a net. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, fine. Um, oh no! I was gonna say I don't even think it's just social media, though. I mean, yeah. you know, I think of of you know again to use myself as an example. Like I was writing a blog, uh, just chronicling my my yeah. art experience, and and I didn't know who was reading it. As far as I was concerned, no one was reading it. Sure. And and honestly, like it was one of those things where I started doing it for myself and and the practice of consistently doing it. But I was mm-hmm. putting myself out there, and what ended up happening in my path was. Um, the editor of Colored Pencil Magazine ended up seeing what I was writing. She invited me to be the Q&A columnist um, because she saw that I was consistently writing about colored pencil and about art. And so I got that opportunity. I wrote for the magazine for almost four years. In that time, I met John. John uh, ended up asking me to come on to be an, in, like to interview me as an artist on the podcast. And we became friends and now I'm the co-host here. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's all those things where, you know, and I'm just little old me in Canada, like, <laughs> you know, there's there, it's one of those things where I think it's important, whether it's social media or, or podcast or your blog or whatever you're doing, putting yourself out there, even if no one is seeing you, you never know who is seeing you. And that's the thing about um, all of those mm-hmm. platforms is that you don't see everyone who shows up to look at what you're doing. Like there's not like a like a, a guest list of people who've all viewed your stuff. So the thing is like, I, I think that just the idea of doing this thing consistently and, and showing up and, and putting putting it out there is important. And And exactly what you said, like, I sure happen to see Justin Bieber on YouTube. Like you just never know who is who is looking at what you're doing and what it leads to. And and to your point, it could be it just needs to be one person, one or two people. Right. 
that it makes a difference. Yeah. And I would Although say that consistency don't... is really key mm-hmm. and, and yes. having more often, yeah. you know, having more frequency uh, to get in front of, I mean, you don't have to have a large player patron, right? You can, you can do this in a small, um, you know, in a smaller way and have more frequency. And I think that's, that's what you're talking about also, Jeff, that you're hoping to put this work out there more often and, you're not hoping for a one-hit wonder kind of thing, yeah. Which I, I think is important, also. Again, I, I, the the term I use is practice in public. So mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the the worst possible outcome for me at the end of this interview is I got to talk in front of other people and and think out loud and go, oh, would have said that differently next time. Like I'm I'm working on my art in front of you because I'm also I'm not just a writer. I'm a speaker, and writing mm-hmm. and speaking. Um, are are the products of thinking, you know? They're not mm-hmm. just communication. I have to think well on my feet in front of other people and then be able to translate those into words that I can communicate to people. And I see people, I see artists um, failing with, say, the internet, doing something mindlessly because some guru told them to do it and not mm-hmm. understanding why. And that is a recipe mm-hmm. for failure. So you want to be right. consistent but what is the Emerson quote? You know, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, right? A fool, like right. you don't want to be foolishly consistent. Quote, you know, yeah. Yeah. a hobgoblin of little minds. You don't want to be a little yeah. mind, right? You don't want to be yeah. doing yeah. it for no reason. And a lot of people are doing it for no reason. They're putting stuff on the yeah, internet. And if it's not working, switch it up, right? Right. I mean, it's like, yeah. And so don't listen to me because I'm a writer telling you how to be, um, you know, a, a colored pencil artist in the world. I don't know. Uh, but what I can tell you is I've I've paid attention to a lot of artists over a long period of time who've done this well. And there are certain yep. principles. And the principle that I see repeated over and over and over again is find a medium that is not completely saturated where other like-minded artists are already showing up. Mm-hmm. Go there and have a powerful, consistent presence and you will win. So, you know, when Hemingway... Ernest Hemingway moved to Paris in the 1920s and became the household name that he is today. Um, He wasn't the first one to do it. He also wasn't the last one to do it. He noticed that more and more writers and artists were going to Paris. Why? Because at the time it was a cheap place to live. And um, after World War One, it was the dollar uh just like went really far and was highly valued in France at the time and so it was what do artists always need uh they need their money to go farther cuz they're usually broke and so but when he went there it was because um an author told him to go he goes this is where the most interesting people in the world live and you should go there and I'll introduce you to you know the, the writers and artists that I already know there which is what happened he met Gertrude Stein and Pablo Picasso and uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and all these people and that became his network. So if you want to make it as say, you know, a colored pencil artist, uh, one, where are like, where are those, where are those communities already happening? Maybe it's not on Instagram or TikTok. Maybe it's some discord community. I don't know. Um, you either need to go where something is starting to happen, but it's not like New York city or LA, right? Though like that, Mm -hmm. those are just too saturated. Um, you're not, you're probably not going to make it. But, um, you know, the, it's happening somewhere and it's happening online. And then, uh, two, if it's not happening anywhere, well, then 
be the one, right? Find a place mm -hmm. to really kind of stake out a claim and find right. the coffee shop or the podcast or the online community or, or the place where you can kind of bring some of your friends to create that community because that's what you need. You need to create a little bit of a flywheel. You need to be able to go somewhere where it's not completely weird for you to hang out and do your work in front of people consistently uh, long enough for other people to notice you. And the people that will notice you, again, are your potential peers, those who are going to help you find the people that will pay you, and then maybe right. even that audience uh, of clients or customers that, that will give you money for your work. You know, Jeff, I wonder yeah. the more I hear you talk about this and thank you for, you know, this is more like, uh, this is a little microcosm of what is discussed in the book. So I appreciate that. The, the more I think about it though, I'm wondering if, um, do you have like a modern day example of somebody like, emailing you and saying, Hey, Jeff, I read this. I started doing X yep. and this is what happened. Can you, are you able to share any of those? I mean, oh, that would be sure, exciting. Of course. Yeah. I call that the, Talk about I, some, yeah, I call that the yeah. case study strategy, um, yeah. which is become somebody else's case study. Michelangelo did this in, yeah. in the 16th century. He, um, he went to Domenico Ghirlandaio, who was um, mm -hmm. a well-known artist at the time, who had his own uh, salon. He had his own studio of artists that he was training as um, apprentices. And at the time, um, apprentices would pay to be apprentice. It was like school, right? And you often had to come from, from wealthy families. Um, uh, Michelangelo did not come from a wealthy family, although he believed that his family was formerly wealthy and that mm -hmm. it was uh, incumbent upon him to go earn back the, the family money. Turns out years later, we found out that historians tend to believe that um, there was no, they weren't from nobility, right? That, that, that it was right. a myth. But because Michelangelo believed this story, believed this myth, uh, he became wealthy. And so, so you just have to understand he was this brazen kid who believed that, that the world owed it to him and to his family to be rich. This is what he believed. Yeah. And so he goes to Ghirlandaio and he says, you're going to let me apprentice under you. Now, he's, he doesn't have any money. He's too old. He's a year too late. He's doing this when he's around 13, 14 years old. And you should have been doing this when you were like 12. Um, and uh, Ghirlandaio goes, what? He goes, yeah. Not only that, I can't pay you. I'm a year late. But you're going to have to pay me. This is how the story goes. You're going to have to pay me. I love that part. <laughs> and again, there's a lot of mythology here. Ghirlandaio was so impressed, taken aback, surprised, whatever you might want to call it, that he goes, yeah. okay, what the hell, kid? You're in, right? And, and of course, uh, a year or two later, when uh, uh, Lorenzo de' Medici comes and asks Ghirlandaio, hey, I want one artist to come with me into the palace where we're going to take him to the next level. Who do you have? Yeah. Well, who stood out? It was, it was, uh, it was Michelangelo. Ghirlandaio recommends Michelangelo to go to the Medici palace. The Medici's are, are basically royalty in Florence at the time. And Michelangelo grows up with a future Pope, uh, a future, uh, uh, eventual Queen of France. I mean, like he is surrounded by the people who eventually become his patrons. 
Now that's a mm-hmm. super microcosmic experience. That's a you know five six hundred yeah. year old story. Now I extrapolate from that what I call the case st- study strategy, which is go find somebody yeah. who's winning, and become their apprentice. Do and don't tell. You don't even need to tell them. Just go do everything that they say. Right? Because and demand payment. No, <laughs> just go there and become their case study, and then yeah, yeah. tell them. Show them, go, I am doing what you said to do and I'm doing it better than most. And look, don't tell me that nobody's doing this because the internet, especially social media, is full of people giving advice to the air. I'm doing it right now. I'm giving advice to the air. Go take somebody's advice, whom you respect and admire, apply it, and then tell them that you did it and show them that it worked and do this over and over and over again. And this is marketing, right? Okay, so that's that's the strategy. Well, I'm being mentored from afar. Yeah, that I love. Yeah, that. yeah. That is you're letting, very you're giving somebody the gift of feeling like their stuff works without actually having to do any work to, to do it. Right? Like, right. If I go, hey, John, on you know podcast number twenty seven, you said this, and I did it, and holy cow, um, it worked. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I mean, both of you guys did that at the beginning. And it made me feel good. And there was a cynical part of me that's going, well, I mean, they didn't quit their jobs because they read your book. And I'm like, well, maybe, you know, and. Well, you never know. I mean, it's, just, you know, it's, you know, and there's I'm lots of influences. I get it. But I mean, yeah. it was like, yeah. it felt yeah. good. And I didn't have to yeah. do anything yeah. other than write that right. book. And if you do that enough times, you will get a handful of people that go, yes, somebody who did that for me. I, I mean, there I have countless examples because I used to teach online courses for writers. And so I've had. Mm-hmm. Like 20,000 students go through my programs. Um, but somebody that comes to mind immediately is my friend, Matt Ragland, Matt Ragland, R-A-G-L-A-N, mm-hmm. uh, who teaches uh, productivity. He's a very creative person. Um, and he did this better than most. And in 2010, 11, maybe, before I was a full-time author, he was reading my blog and he reached out to me and he said, hey, I'd like to buy you lunch and and actually was he he used to work for this um camp and so um he worked for a family camp and the way that industry works is to recruit um this is kind of like pre uh well not pre-internet but this is an old model and um basically the way to get people to come to your campus you would often uh travel and you would go have like little house parties where um Parents would invite their friends and go, hey, our kid goes to this camp and it's really cool. So he was traveling through the area doing that and and we went out for lunch because he was doing that at the time, but he really wanted to be a full-time writer, blogger, you know, person right. on the internet. And um, and he did this and we, we met and had lunch and I gave him some advice and he was already reading my blog. And then he just kept writing me emails and he kept saying, hey, you hmm. said this thing and I did it, but have you thought about this? Have you thought about writing an article about this? And I was like, no, that's a good idea. I'll write that. He did that oh, wow. three or four yeah. times over the course of six months. And then finally, because the, the the thing that I was teaching was, hey, you've got to show up in other people's channels. You have to guest blog. You have to guest post on other people's blogs. That's how you're going to get noticed mm-hmm. by writers. And that was true at the time. It's less true now. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. so after sort of forming a digital relationship with him, having met him at lunch, he bought my lunch. Um, I was like, Hey, I can trust this guy, you know? And he, he said, Hey, yeah. have you thought about writing an article about this? I said, no. He said, well, I'd like to write it for you. And I'd like you to put it on your blog 
and then link back to my blog as a result. And I said, well, of course, you know, well, I said, let me see the article. He sent it to me. It was a great article. Put it on the blog. And I had thousands of readers at the time. And so I was, mm -hmm. I was becoming his patron in that moment. And I was sharing right, him right. with my audience. Um, it is not a good idea for you to sit around and um, wait for some patron to come discover you because it's a noisy right. world where lots of people are asking for handouts. Uh, but this works. I use this strategy. Yeah, Matt used this with me and many other people and kind of formed this community of patrons. And what is Matt doing today? He's a successful YouTuber. Uh, he's a full-time blogger and thought leader. And he is somebody that I, he's a friend of mine. He lives here in Nashville now. He's somebody that I go to for advice because he's, he knows things that I don't know. And this is what happens in Everybody's this. Everybody successful has to move to Nashville, <laughs> I've noticed anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's like required. Well, it's, it's, um. It's, it's, it's one of those kind of next it places because it's small. It's a yeah. nexus of creativity, technology, and money. Right. And when I moved to Nashville in 2006, it was a small town. It still kind of is, but I mean, we've yeah. got people from New York and LA that are moving here all the time because it's, it's kind of what those places used to be. And soon they'll be moving somewhere right. else because there'll be too many people. I'm glad you brought this example up though. I mean, it's like, because I want to just underscore it just a, a couple of times here. Um, th there's this, guys, there's this this law of reciprocity, though, that Jeff is really uh, sort of uh, imbibing in, in this discussion here. Because, you know, his friend didn't come to him and say, hey, uh, I'm going to guest post. Put this on your, your uh, blog right away. That wouldn't have worked. And I, I'm sure you get this, Jeff. I get this. I'm sure Barb does. I get people... Uh, you know, just clogging up my inbox all the time, asking to guest post. Uh, and I was going to tease you earlier, like you're the guy. You're the guy telling everyone to not just tease them. But it's a bad strategy. I wouldn't that, do it but anymore. You're right. I tell that them used no. to yeah. work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I just hit spam right away, that kind of thing. But I mean, it's like there. You've not been helpful. You've not uh, engaged and had some kind of conversation and any kind of meaningful. Yeah discussion about anything yet so you're a complete stranger to somebody and it just it just falls yeah flat. and again there's there's a fine art here to doing this well mm. and it's it's not being so like brazen that you go hey give me money for a thing that i haven't earned yet it's not that right and it's right. also not like yeah. well i'm just going to be nice to everybody kind of the doormat strategy like you don't want to be a jerk and you exactly. don't want to be a doormat the genius of what Michelangelo right. does going to Ghirlandaio is all he's doing is saying, I'm good. And 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 yeah. you're going to want to pay me. Right. And well then, well, then he proved and he, it. And he proved too, it over mean? and over and over again. Yeah. And and it was it was a bet, right? right? Um mm -hmm. and asking somebody influential to lunch is a bet. It's going, hey, I'm worth yeah. your time. And, and the, even the audacity of that is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And so you may want to play with it a little bit. Uh, Michelangelo wasn't going to Ghirlandaio because he needed a job, right? So he wasn't asking mm -hmm. for the money because he needed the money necessarily. I mean, of course he was. He was, he was saying, hey, my dad's going to beat me if, if, if uh, you don't if, – if I have to ask him to pay for this because we don't have any money. Um, right. but, but I really want to apprentice under you and this is going to be worth your time. Yeah. And that act made him stand out over and over and over again. I mean, what are you going to do? Right. You know, if you've got a studio of 20 apprentices 
and they're all paying you to be there. And then you got this one kid that you're paying to be there. You're like, well, mm -hmm. I got to get my money's worth. So what happened was Ghirlandaio mm -hmm. gave Michelangelo access to his drawings. He gave him access to uh, documents and tools and resources right. that the rest of the apprentices had to fight each other for. And so that's an unfair advantage. And your job as an artist is to mm -hmm. first find the people who have access to the audiences and the networks and the scenes that you don't have access to. And then your job mm -hmm. is to find a way to stand out to them. And, and coming right. with some generosity, but also some audacity is a good strategy. Mm -hmm. It's consistent, audacious generosity over and over and over again. I did, um, I, I didn't become a friend and a fan of Matt Ragland just because he was really nice to me and bought me lunches, but because I saw that he was right. smart and a good writer and a good thinker. And he knew stuff and knows stuff that I didn't know. And I was like, yes, you are mm -hmm. identifying needs that I have that I want to fulfill for my audience. And I don't know how to meet those needs. So come on, bring it on. Yeah. Right. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. I just want to add to that, too. I think, you know, while it's important to also be, you know, good at the work that you're doing to sort of show up that way, I would say I think it's also important to just be professional in that in that instance, too, yeah. and actually follow through with the things you're going to say mm -hmm. you say you're going to do, because, you know, there's there's so many people who may be talented, but they kind of fall flat on some of the other interactions. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, you know, if, if you're going to commit to a project, make sure you finish that project on time. And if you can't finish it on time, be open with your communication with the person that you're working with and letting right. them know why and giving them good justification and not just that, oh, I just, I just, yep. you know, make up an excuse or something. Like, I think the thing that I've experienced in my career, especially in, in, in the companies I've worked with is that Part of the reason they want to continue working with me or they have worked with me more than once was because um, of the, the level of professionalism I was bringing to. So it's, it's not enough to just be good at what you're doing. You kind of have to be the whole package, I think. Like you have to be, you know, uh, willing to follow through on not just the work, but uh, like the, the whole aspect of, of totally. doing business with yeah, someone I for mentioned that matter. Before, um, yeah. There's, um, if you Google Michelangelo, entrepreneur or Michelangelo CEO. Mm -hmm. There's an article uh, that pops up in the New York Times that's actually about a book that was written. I, and I spoke mm -hmm. with the author as a professor. He's, he's kind of the leading living Michelangelo expert. Um, and his name is William Wallace, by the way, mm -hmm. which is super fun. Uh, goes by Bill, Bill Wallace, who, uh, <laughs> nice. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think he worked, I think he still works at he St. Louis University. Good old Bill. Um, but he wrote this book about how for the last 50 years of his life, Michelangelo was in charge of a building project. And it was the cathedral at San Lorenzo, the San Lorenzo Cathedral, which is in Florence. Um, and he was the architect. Um, he, and, and he was the foreman for this project that had hundreds of people building a cathedral for the last 40 years of Michelangelo's life. Michelangelo lived uh, right up until almost age 90, I believe. And um, and from like 50 to 89, he was managing this project. I mean, it took a long time to build cathedrals. And so he was, uh, in the words of Bill Wallace, he was foreman, 
CEO. He was running a business uh, with hundreds of people. And, and I think we have this, um, and, and the architect, you know, he's the chief architect of it. And we have this idea, I think, that a, like a, an artist just does one thing and they do it really well. And certainly that is a type of artist. Um, but, you know, you go back five, six hundred years and you have one of the greats, one of the great Renaissance masters, um, not doing everything, but doing a handful of things really, really well and doing them to the point that the Pope would go, hey, I have a project that's going to take decades and I'm going to entrust you to get it done. Um and mm -hmm. and so treating this like a job, if you want to get paid to do it, treat it like a job because that's what people pay for are right. jobs. That And it doesn't mean right. that you can't go make art for the sake of art. If that's what you want to do, do it. And if you want to be, right. you know, the artist who has a job and then does their art on the side, I think that's fine. It's an, it's an honest way to do your oh, work. Yeah. But if you, but like a lot of artists that I know, you kind of want to have your cake and eat it too. And you go, Hey, I want to just draw pretty pictures. And I want somebody to hover over me one day and go, you're a genius. I want to throw money at you while you do this. And you don't have to, you don't ever have, it is I a mean, dream. That's the dream. You know? and, and we all wake up from dreams eventually. <laughs> but then yeah. it's the nightmare. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's kidding. just like, if you're not going to worry about how to accept payment or send invoices or manage right. any sort of client communication, then you don't, then you don't yeah. want a job. And it's, and it's okay yeah. Yeah. to admit that, but it's not okay right. to say, I want X and do and pursue Y because you're never going to get there. Right. And my only intent mm -hmm. for writing Real Artists Don't Starve was, yeah. um, hey, you want to do this for a living. You want to make a living as an artist. Here are the patterns that we've seen over and over and over and over and mm -hmm. over again of successful artists mm -hmm. who have done this for hundreds of years. This stuff probably, st and we're still seeing it today, this stuff probably works. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, in some ways, it's easier than it's ever been. If you're a musician or a mm -hmm. fine artist or a writer and you're, and you're, and you're like, um, nostalgic for the good old days you're full of crap like you were just full of crap my grandfather was a fine artist he was a jazz pianist he was an excellent writer he was an author he's a playwright um he he was an oil painter he was an he was a renaissance man he was an incredible artist and vocationally mm -hmm. he was a journalist he worked for a newspaper for decades called the, the beacon news in aurora illinois just outside of chicago and um my aunt, his daughter, told me, she said, his whole life, he was trying to get published as an author, and he never could. And he would be so proud of you. And the, and I've read his writing. I've got his play. I've got a copy of his play. And he wrote all kinds of other things. But hmm. I, I have uh, it sitting on my coffee table as a reminder of the incredible privilege that I have to be what I am and do what I do. Because the truth is, he was a better writer than me. And mm. I just got born at a better time where it was, my first book was self-published yeah. and it sold 50,000 copies because mm. I had a blog, Wow, you know? Yeah. Um, right. So, and it's true for musicians. It's true for uh, artists. You have an yeah. opportunity to get in front of people for free every day. And most Absolutely. of us, myself included, yeah. are squandering it because we want some illusion yeah. of a better time when it was easier. This is the best time to be an artist. But yeah. this is it. Yeah. And it oh, doesn't, and some things are yeah, easier and exactly some things right. are harder, harder. And there's more I mean, people out there. There's more noise. There's more competition. I get it. Yeah. 
And and my my challenge is get yeah. better. Get better than most of the people that you're competing yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah, well, right. I mean, because the good things yes. can float to the top yes. easier, too, when there's yeah. a lot of noise. So, yeah, it, it doesn't take a whole it lot does, to yeah. stand. Yeah, and if you I can't think, be better, be different, because that's really what it takes no. to get noticed. Yeah. 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 Right. I think what's really important about your book, too, is that, um, you know, there's this romantic notion around art and creating art. And certainly, you know, I experienced it even being in art school. I did four years of art school. And, you know, I did two, you know, art history classes and that. And I found one of the things I found really interesting is, you know, the example of Michelangelo that you use and you speak about him quite, you know, quite a lot throughout the whole book and sort of his his history and sort of this. What, what I would say sure. is almost like a lesser known history about him and just the idea that he was successful and he was this entrepreneur. And and that part of his history really isn't taught even in art schools and art history. Like they, there's a folk, I mean, you know, obviously there's only so much time and they're trying to get through a lot of art history. But, um, you know, the, it just just the fact that to me, that is one of the biggest failings of even art institutions is the fact that, you know, I went through the design program. So I certainly got a, a very different kind of education and experience, but I, I would see from you know, my friends who are going through the art, fine art side, there's this focus on, you know, the art and creating the art and, and, and the idea of like the innovation and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like, you need to know how to market yourself. You need to understand the practical side of how to actually become a successful artist, because it's exactly that. If you're sitting there thinking that somebody is just going to see your artwork and that'll be it and you'll be famous. Like there's there's this practical side that I think needs to be infused even into art education, like on the on a formal college level or university level, where we're giving artists the tools to actually be able to succeed and follow through with a lot of the things that you're talking about. Because I think there's still that's part of why this myth continues to be perpetuated is the fact that people think that, well, if your work's good enough, someone will just find you and that'll be it for you. It's like, no, like. You, you can't operate that way anymore. Like there's so much more to it. You have to be a well-rounded person if you really want to do this and be successful. And there's no shame in wanting to be successful. I mean, the other side of it was that, you know, the, the, the communications and design side of the school totally. always got looked down on because we, we were the sellouts, <laughs> right? Like we were doing commercial art and. And I always really struggled with that because I felt like, you know, if they were smart, what they should have done is when everyone got to their fourth year, they should have paired a design student with a fine art student and got them to build their website or do their branding and like have this collaborative experience where you can see that these two worlds don't have to be separate. They don't have to be in well, conflict you, you made with each that other. work yourself. They can be, you, know, you, did that. you know, yeah. Yeah, but but I think like, you know, there's so there's so many people who like and I, and I have friends that graduated from the fine arts side and, you know, they got out of, you, just let them you know, fall. college and there's either <laughs> like, they didn't pursue. Yeah, they either fly. didn't pursue art or they worked at Starbucks. So they did. Yeah, totally. But, you know, and I, and one one girl specifically, she was my roommate for many years. She she did like fine art drawing and then she ended up. Actually, what she does now largely is very much illustration, but she didn't go through the illustration program. But, you know, we've talked quite a few times and I've given her lots of advice and that sort of thing. But I'm just sitting here thinking like this poor girl, like went through this yeah. program, got, got a degree and they gave her zero tools to actually be able to succeed afterwards. And, and that totally. to me, like the amount of money that art school costs, right. and certainly it's a lot less in Canada than it is in the United States, like 
they're robbing people and then setting them out well, on the street and, and, and not and, giving them the tools. And in fine art of uh, painting and stuff like that, where you're just trying to express whatever you're wanting to express yourself, then you've got this um, the sense yeah. of of urgency. Like I've got a, I've got a niche. I've got a you know. Uh, find my uh, expressive voice here in all of this, and you know what? What am I going to yeah. do? That, to your uh, point there, Jeff, about being different. If you can't, you know, be the best, then be different. And I think Sally Hogshead said, "Being different is better than better." Right. So it's like there's so much pressure then to do these things, even without thinking about you know this other piece, this huge piece that's just woefully yeah. missing. This totally. business side yeah. of things. Um, and pro I mean, not yeah. to step on anybody's toes, but here we go anyway. You know, I mean, probably the best way to be a professional <laughs> artist is not to go to art school. Certainly true of writing. Right. People are like, oh, you must have studied English in college. No, I right. didn't. Because I didn't like those people. And the professors <laughs> didn't wear deodorant. And it wasn't interesting to me. And years <laughs> later, I was called back to my college to speak. Uh, for the entire school. And then I, I visited some comp you know, writing classes, some composition classes, and my old English professor, whom I loved, was a wonderful woman um, and taught me lots about writing. She said, how do you get published? She had no idea, you know? Um, and, yeah. and that's fine. Because, I mean, there crazy. are different things. Crazy. Writing and publishing are not the same yeah, thing. Yeah. But most people who go, I, I, I want to well, study writing or too. I want to study art. They want to do something with that. And there was actually an interesting study yeah. that I cited in the book where students of the arts eventually uh, end up making just as much money as their, you know, sort of STEM counterparts or corollaries. Um, and and, and mm -hmm. they, they do quite well eventually. But but the irony is is they typically don't do jobs in the arts, right? They don't go off and become professional artists. Um, and so if you go to art school, you need to understand that you are probably not Very going large. to become, uh, you know, Georgia O'Keeffe. Uh, be, because yeah. that, you know, if you want to be Georgia O'Keeffe, then follow her path and, and go be her. Um, but if you want a job that is informed by the arts, then wonderful, you know, like – study the arts what is a shame and it's happening across most disciplines especially in 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 you know the in any sort of bachelor of arts degree is um you know the universities and colleges are just so um removed from the rest of life without realizing it mm -hmm. and it are you mm -hmm. studying art or are you studying to become an artist right the title of my book was real artists mm -hmm. don't starve it was a book about it was not a book about art. Mm -hmm. It was a book about how to be an artist. Because as you mm -hmm. guys both said, nobody told me this stuff. Nobody told me that Michelangelo mm -hmm. uh, understood real estate and invested most of his money into buying right. land during the Renaissance because that's how yeah. you made money. You know what most of my friends who are uh, successful creative professionals are doing right now? The same thing. They're buying land and, and getting on into Airbnb and VRBO and rental properties because um, mm, you know it's right. a good it's a good time to get into real estate even if it's really difficult. Mm. Um, so, and the other thing I would say is um, the whole idea of the myth of the starving artist is a myth. It was a story invented mm -hmm. by a guy named Henri Merger who was an unsuccessful artist, and he said, "Screw you guys! 
I'm going to tell a story. And it was actually a series of short stories uh, that he published that eventually became La Boheme and the musical Rent and Moulin Rouge. They're all based on the same story, which is um, here's a bunch of bohemian artists who are eking yeah. out a living and they're not giving in to the man. That was a story invented by a right. slighted yeah. artist. And the irony is by telling that story, he became successful. Like lots of people knew that story, which is, I mean, it's a trope. It's a, it's a thing that artists do. Yeah. They, 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 they create art, whether it's a song, a painting, a, a book, whatever, to rebel against the fact that there is no right. place for their art in the world. And what happens is there's a place for art in their world. You know, what did Picasso do? He became the best. And then he's like, screw you guys. I'm going to paint squares, right? I'm going to, like, I'm not interested in realism anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, cubism. I'm, I'm fascinated with shapes and flattening three-dimensional mm -hmm. reality mm -hmm. into two-dimensional pictures. And, and people are like, oh, that's cool mm -hmm. too, right? I mean, you know, Kanye West is like, you know, I'm going to do another weird thing. And everybody's like, cool, you know, look at him being weird. Uh, it's it's a trope. It's a strategy. And, and once you get known well enough, yeah, you, whatever you do is sort of baptized. And the artist, it, here's yeah, the thing. Yeah. Your art is not um, is not happening independently from your life, right? And, it's, and, and if your life mm -hmm. is full of struggle to matter um, – and and succeed but you don't want to sell out well welcome to being an artist because like every artist struggles with that including you know the successful ones you think john mayer isn't going am i a sellout right yeah. of course he is like most of his work lately has been going ah you know i guess i'll go tour with the yeah. grateful dead for a while like i've got to find a way for this thing to be true to me and and that looks different for everyone, but there is no like artist who is free from the potential to doubt themselves and whether or not they're a real artist. The 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 most wonderful word in the title of my book is real because people are immediately offended by what do you mean I can't be a real artist? And every artist I know who is a legitimate artist goes, "Am I a real artist?" Like yeah. it yeah. is a. I wondered quandary. about that. That that is a polarizing you know? like, um, way to position. Of course it is. Yeah, it's yeah. a yeah, it's exactly. a dare. It's a dare. Are you a real artist? Well, you're damn right I am. Good. Go then go yeah. and don't starve because you don't have to anymore. Be like all of those who came before you yeah. and take your right. work yeah. seriously enough to get paid for it. And join the ranks of those who are in this endless struggle to mm -hmm. make their work matter without selling mm -hmm. out. Because it is hard. Like, do you guys struggle with that? I well, do. Of course, yeah. That I wonder, does this right. matter? Am I being true to myself? Yeah. I don't want to yeah. go broke. I don't want to be well, a sellout. And I, I create it's hard, courses and, you know? and, so, and workshops and live workshops and Oh, you're such a sellout, John. Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> because I, I'm trying to, I'm thinking at the same time of what is going to what resonate a with a, a larger mass, you know. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, I'm creating my particular style and my niche yep. while I'm doing that. So I think I trust the artist who has not given up that struggle yeah. with, I want to create good, important work and I want to pay my bills. And 
damn it if it isn't hard to reconcile those two. Right. I believe that good art actually comes out of that struggle. Mm-hmm. And and that um Yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, all these masters uh were struggling with mm-hmm. this. You right. know, it is kind of a classic a struggle. Yeah. You know, the struggle to make money and the struggle to make art. And then those who end up making good money now are often plagued with the self-doubt of did I sell out? Is this good? What do I do with this responsibility? Yeah. And and some people some people give up on the struggle and, and we call those people sellouts. Well they, and they start pandering. Yeah. But I think good art comes from this constant questioning of oneself. Not that you've got to be a crazy person or you've got to be, you know, a Van Gogh-esque, you know, self-tortured no, right. person. That's not fun. No. But it's okay to constantly be going, Am I doing it? Am I doing yeah. this right? Yeah. And and that kind of goes back to the Mrs. Frankel story, which is me sitting in seventh grade, watching myself on the news, watching a class full of my peers laugh at me, feeling embarrassed, feeling like I screwed this up. This was a misfire. I am never doing this again. And then hearing my teacher whisper in my ears, that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I had to reconcile that. And you know what I did? I said, I'm going to make more art. And I made three yeah. or four more videos like that and people yeah. you know what happened people stopped laughing and they started copying me and by the end of the year everybody was doing oh wow it. that's cool that's really cool yeah. yeah well and i think that's 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 exactly it and, and just as a, a comment in in general the fact that your teacher said that to you i think is amazing because, she was amazing yeah like just Sounds the fact amazing. that she she saw what was happening and, really and came over to you and was like no you know what what you did was great. What you, you did something different. You took yeah. a risk. And so many people, I think, are willing to just do what they're supposed to do. I think being, choosing to be an artist in itself, yes. there's, there's a certain amount of bravery uh, around that mm-hmm. because it, you know, especially because first of all, everyone in your life is probably going to tell you it's a bad idea yeah. that you can't make money that like all the things that you're saying. Yeah, right. And so. For you to to choose, especially at a young age, to do something like that, even in the face of, you know, your peers kind of laughing you. I mean, they're probably uncomfortable and they're laughing here and they're saying whatever, but secretly they're, they're probably also like, ah, I wish yeah. you would have thought yeah. of that. Yeah, I'm sure right? they were. Like, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's so, weird. And anytime you're weird, people will yeah. not understand you yeah. and they will malign you and make, I mean, it's just a reality of life. Like, but if I you think don't there's, in, there's so yeah. many cultural trends that are there are like that though like if you think about any anything that's that becomes popular oftentimes starts with somebody probably criticizing it initially right yeah. so you know it's it's one of those things where uh, i think people especially young children need to be encouraged to to think creatively and do something different i think being an artist is a lot of creative problem solving exactly what you said in terms of trying to reconcile being able to make a living doing what you're doing but also feeling like you're creating art that that's authentic to you and that you feel good about there's i think there's a balance there that needs to be found and yeah there are people that maybe just sell out and like you're saying just end up pandering completely but that that's kind of its own thing i think like i think a lot of what you're talking about in the book is finding that balance of like you know what do the things that make sense so that you can keep doing this you can keep funding your art you can keep the process going and yeah it may mean taking on some projects you don't love but maybe it's like 20% products you or uh, projects you don't love and 80% what you do want to do or whatever percentage makes sense for you at whatever point you are in your career instead of just 
feeling like it has to be all or nothing. I wanted to ask you a little bit about money specifically in terms of you talk about how artists should always charge something and they shouldn't work for yeah. free and that you should always have ownership of your work in, in terms of, you know, whether it's used for something that you would get royalties for and that sort of thing. I get a lot of artists that tend to message me saying, um, you know, I've got my first commission. What do I do? How much do I charge? I don't know what right. to do. You know, what would you recommend to someone who is a newer artist, you know, somebody who doesn't feel like they have the, I guess, uh, the career or the sort of not or like, uh, popularity to say start charging a certain amount? Like, what advice would you give to somebody who is just starting and maybe feels like they should be giving their work away for free because they don't have that confidence yet that they should be charging what they, they want should exposure, be exposure, that kind of thing. Sure, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Steve Pressfield told me once opportunities are bull. He said, I, I know that there's a movement in the art world to um, do work for exposure so that someday you can charge for your work. He said, it's real big. You know, Steve is a novelist mm -hmm. and best-selling author, right. and he's well-known for, you know, the war of right. art, um, you know, but also has a whole uh, series of best-selling novels that, that have done really, really well. And that those kind of put him on the map. Mm -hmm. But he started out as um, a screenwriter in Hollywood. And, and that, I mean, that's a place that really kind of eats writers up and spits them out. And everybody's doing work for free, right? Mm -hmm. They're doing it on spec, yeah. hoping that it'll turn into a movie or something. And and he said, look, I, I did that for a season and it never, ever, ever, ever panned out. Now, I know it does for some people, but as a rule, I think opportunities are meaning don't do something for some amorphous sure. opportunity. It'll be a good opportunity well, for you, be good yeah. exposure for you. Yeah. It, go into it knowing exactly what you're going to get out of it. Instead of some vague expectancy that someday this is going right. to pay off. Uh, and understand that it's easier to charge a dollar than it is to charge zero dollars. Mm -hmm. um, it's easier. Yeah. And, and, it is, and it is so much easier to, to talk somebody into paying you more versus going from not paying you to paying you. Right? Zero to one is an infinity. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, Zero times a million is still a zero, but you know, one plus whatever equals more of something, right? So charge something, mm -hmm. um, as soon as you can. And if you need to do the first few pieces, um, for free, get something out of it. And the something that you can get out of it is go, Hey, yeah. can I use this, uh, and list it on my website as part of my portfolio? Or would you be willing to introduce me to somebody else? Yeah. That's not free. No, Those right. things have value. Right. So you're always working yeah. Yeah. for something. That's the rule. <laughs> always work for something. Um, and then understand that art is incredibly subjective. What should you charge? Uh, uh, you yeah. know, like understand every artist in your place goes, I don't know. I started ghostwriting, right? Um, and there are people that charge $5,000 to write a book. And there are people that charge millions of dollars to mm -hmm. write a book. So what should I charge? Uh, you know what I did? I picked a number and somebody said yes. And the next time I picked another number that was more and I kept raising it until people started saying no. And that's how you price subjective things. So it, it's one of the, the number one questions yeah. that I get. Uh, I get yeah. emails and people, what, what do I charge? That kind yeah. of thing. And art mentoring students, I get that all the time. Um, and so 
what I hear you saying, and I, I totally agree with, yeah, you've got to charge something. That's so much easier. No one's going to value your work if you don't value it. But or even like a service yeah, tree, yeah, what, like whatever yeah, it and is. You do that Having like some sort of you do that a couple tree. of times, not for years. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, good point. But the other thing is, so so yeah. many that I talk to are afraid to charge too. They're like, oh, it's too much, and like, yeah. well, you know what? You you can you can change that too. You do, it doesn't have to right. be set in stone. Right. But there is this pervasive idea out there that. Oh, I've already raised my prices to this amount. I can't go back down now. Yes, you oh, can. Sure. That's fair. You can go right. back down. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if 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 you wanted like a practical blueprint, because I feel like this is pretty practical, yeah. and you can sort of follow this plan, and it works. We love practicality um, you know, around here. <laughs> yeah. Say say I'm gonna I'm gonna decide to be a um a colored pencil artist tomorrow. Uh, the first thing I'm going to do is like take a course like yours, yeah. John, and I'm going to do that one because I want to learn from you. Two, I want to get around my peers, and three, I want to become one of your best students. So you recommend me because because the fastest mm -hmm. way for me to get to where you are is to know where you've been mm -hmm. and to copy you as much as I can, yeah. and then find a way to to find my own mm -hmm. niche. So I'm going to find a community of people, and then I'm going to find out what they're charging. Right. Right. And I'm going to do one or two pieces for free, maybe three if I need to. I'm going to get a website. I'm going to build out a portfolio and I'm going to do these things, one, to just get the confidence that I can do right. them. And then afterwards, I'm going to ask the people, hey, what would you have paid me to do this? What could I have charged? And then I'm going to ask my peers what they're charging. And then I'm going to go get some paid work. And I'm intentionally going to do that work cheaper than most people because mm -hmm. I just need confidence mm -hmm. and I need some yeses. Right. The best way for you to charge a lot of money is to charge something and get people to say yes. Right. That'll grow your confidence. And then you just experiment. Yeah. So get like three or four yeses. Like this is in six months, you should be able to like be making a decent living doing this if, if you're tenacious. And the first few you're going to do for free. The next few you're going to do for below market mm -hmm. rate. Um, and you're going to tell them that you're doing it for below market rate so that they you don't get into this habit of yeah. having clients who always want a 20% right. discount. Right. Hey, and you're going to send them an invoice that says, hey, this is normally $1,000, mm -hmm. but for you, I'm doing it for 50% off. And the invoice says $1,000 right. slashed out $500. Yeah, right. And if you and when you do your free work, same thing, $1,000, $2,500 or whatever it is, slashed out free. And this is a one-time thing right. that you're doing for a special opportunity. Um and then understand that the people who charge you, who, who you, whom you charge less money, they're probably never going to pay a lot of money. Right. Like, right. That's just dead. Different. And, yeah. but they're, you're, you're using it as a stepping stone to a better right. market. Um, and then it's just an exercise mm -hmm. where you get on a call or send an email and you go, let's say you're used. I mean, like what's a commit, what's an average commission cost in, in your market right now? That's <laughs> that, a real question. That depends on who. So I'm doing hard, one. Right? Yeah, and I'll, I'll say this. It's over yeah. $2,000. Um, Great. Okay, okay, cool. So, um, let's say I want to be like you, John, and, uh, you know, and I'm doing like 250 yeah. bucks right now. And I go, man, it'd be awesome. If I, if I could do $2,000 commissions and I could do 50 of those a year, that'd be a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. You know, that's a living, right? Um, I could do that one a week, right? Um, so <laughs> not right. with colored you know, pencil, you know, sure. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But that, that's how that we think about these things, right? <laughs> yeah. 
but I'm I'm doing yeah. <laughs> $250 and it's going to be hard for me to make any serious money. Right, right. Doing that. And I don't, and the, and the gap from 250 to 2000 is huge, right? So, um, yeah. Going from 250 to 500 would feel scary to me if I were there, probably, right? Mm-hmm. And so what, what I do is, is I would find, you know, people that were interested in commission, they would say, Hey, I'll give you $250 for that, right? What I would say is, well, you know, as you know, you know, the market rate can range anywhere from 500 to $5,000 for this sort of thing. Um, you know, normally I would do this for about, normally I would do this for about 750, but I'll, I'll charge you 500 Mm -hmm. for it. Um, how does that, how does 500 sound to you for this one? Um, and that's scary, even though you've kind of done this little value rigging thing where you're going, Hey, normally be 750, but I'll do you 500. There's a couple of things there. One, I'm anchoring it at 750 and I'm dropping it down to 500. Uh, uh, two, I'm obviously getting them up from 250 to, to 500, right, right. and I'm establishing that that isn't even the highest that the market can sustain. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be scary until you get people to go, okay, you know, and, and then and then you do that a couple of times, and then you stop, and then you go, hey, it's a thousand bucks, right? That's just that's, that's just what, what I charge. Is, yeah. But and 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 you might get one or two people to say no, and you've got to sit in that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And and you could go down. You go okay. Well, maybe about seven fifty. And you do that once or twice, and then you start to know this. That's a habit where you're quoting a price, and then people yeah. talk you down, and then they don't um, respect you, know, you or your work when that happens. I'm sorry. <laughs> in in general, the less clients pay, the more work yes. they are. The more the more the, the more they are to manage. Hundred percent. And and the number that they give you is almost never the final number. And so really, this is a game in a in a in a, in a game where you're selling subjective yeah. stuff to people. Where I mean, Damien Hurst, you know, created the most expensive piece of art ever, and was a diamond encrusted skull. You know, you're just yeah. making stuff. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you are literally making. And I get it, yeah. you know, John. You're gonna put weeks into this illustration right. or whatever. Fine, whatever. It's still subjective. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Is is should I pay you five dollars an hour or five hundred dollars an hour or five thousand dollars right. an hour? What is your time actually right. worth? It's worth whatever it's right. worth. Right. Whatever somebody will actually pay for. Now, this is kind of an interesting because um, this is a game that I'm playing right now, where somebody recently emailed me and our team and said, "Hey." Um, I only have $5,000. I need you to write my book. We go, cool. Those projects start at $50,000. Yeah. And we, th- and that's our nice way of saying, see yeah. you later. Come back when you've got right. some money. And this person who came yeah. saying, I have $5,000 said, well, what do I get for 50? And we didn't, we didn't say, Hey, we'll do it for 45 or right. we'll, we could do this for $5,000. We said, this starts at $50,000 yeah. and we're totally comfortable doing that because people pay us over a hundred thousand dollars to do this. Right. Um, and uh, yeah. I thought, well, wasn't that interesting? I have I've never seen that thus mm, far. Yeah, where we upsell somebody from a five thousand right. dollar budget to a fifty thousand dollar budget. But you start. What you realize is this is really about you. It's really mm-hmm. about you and your comfort mm-hmm. level, and you begin to attract what you are actually worth. And what you are worth is not what people think you're mm-hmm. worth. It's not even what you say you're worth. What you are worth is what you actually believe you mm-hmm. are worth. And then as soon as you find somebody who believes your belief and you have to believe it, even if you're kind of like shaking a little bit, you know, um, and the more you believe it, the more it just like, it is. So I don't go, um, uh, I don't know. I, I don't go into an Apple store and go, Hey, I need this $1,200 iPhone for $600. 
because they're so, and, and that's kind of ridiculous, right? Because Apple charges three times what their competitors right. charge for competitive products. And we just accept yeah. it as a matter of fact, because yeah. it's not even up for discussion. So the strategy is join a community, find out what people are charging, do a couple pieces for free, do a couple, you know, under market rate, then start charging market rates and then start quickly raising your prices. Um, you know, and you do it gradually and then it's just a game against yourself. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going, how do I get into the top? You know, right now in what I do, I'm in top 50% of the market. How do I get in the top 25%? Mm -hmm. How do I get in the top 10%, top five, top one? And some people are so confident that they just skip the line. I, mean, I have a friend who's a photographer and he went from doing $500 weddings to doing $20,000 oh, wow. weddings, top 1% of his yeah. industry. And he did it so confidently that everybody just went, okay, you must be mm -hmm. good. They believed what he believed. I love that. Yeah. And it's, it's not fake it till you make it. It's believe it till you become mm -hmm. it. And, 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 and this yeah, is a game like <laughs> where you've got to earn the right to believe something is true about you. Cause you've got two parts of you, right? The part of you that doubts yourself and the part of you that wants this to be true. Right. And so it's, it's you versus you. And the more you believe yourself, the more you actually believe what you're worth. Don't tell me you believe it. People know if you don't because believe you don't. It. People know if you don't believe People it. People know. know. Yeah. And most artists I know who don't charge a lot for their work doubt oh, yeah. themselves. And they'll be talked down. And I, they know don't. I, I know I'm, yeah. I know I'm worth this. No, you don't. I, and I know you don't. So begin to train yourself to I, believe you are worth more than you're currently right. charging. And do it in whatever way feels good and normal and natural to you and just keep finding your edge oh my goodness you know, there's always a new this is edge so good yeah yeah the thing that i love too about the believe it until you become it is that it's a yeah. more positively affirming statement like the thing that always bothered me about fake it till you make it is you're that a it fraud that yeah you know you don't have it yeah like you know well, yeah, like it still it still sort of implies this idea that yeah, you're, you right. you you don't have it and you never will have it, yeah, and you're, yeah, pu exactly. you're putting this ruse over people, right? Like, and and I think that the idea of believe it until you become it is this whole thing where it's like you're positioning yourself yeah. to have belief in yourself that you can achieve it, as opposed to right. the fact that you're being then, deceptive and, about. And then the more right? people like, match that belief of yours, the more you really will believe right. it. But then here's yeah. the other thing: is you'll go. Well, now I, I want to grow. I want more. You know, there's, there's going to be another mm. level. Um, and that's a wonderful journey, yeah, absolutely. you know, and, and treat, treat it like a game, not like I'm trying to arrive because right. you're never arriving. You're just constantly yeah. finding the next new challenge mm -hmm. that's going to allow you to grow. And this is where I think your business as an artist can become another art mm -hmm. form. It can become. Not just this like yeah. back office administrative, I hate this that I have to do kind mm -hmm. of thing, but it's another yeah, way to yeah. grow and become uh, what you right, could be. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jeff, we could talk to you all day, apparently. Um, <laughs> I feel like we just started, but I know it's been nearly two hours. Uh, so I really appreciate your time yeah. and coming on here. Uh, thank you so, so much. And Barb and I have been looking forward to this for a long, long time. Yeah, definitely. We've been talking about it for a while. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure. Um, you know, I wrote that book five years ago, wow. which um, yeah. feels like forever. In ago. pandemic time, it's only three. Still years. relevant. See, we didn't even I talk know, about that. There's probably been some, <laughs> that is, some that things that you probably no, would I'm, have thought about differently, maybe or something, uh, because of the pandemic. Yeah, I don't I'm, know. I'm, it's weird. 
Totally. I'm, I'm grateful that it, that it, that it holds oh, yeah, up. It I think it does. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be able to talk about these ideas. It's fun to remember something you said five years ago and still have some awesome. Yeah, today. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So thank you so much again. Where, where would you like for people to go to uh, check out everything you've got going on? Sure. Yeah. I launched a new podcast. Speaking of pandemic stuff, I, I sunsetted a bunch of old projects, including, um, you know, a podcast that I've been running for about six years and started a new podcast for creators um, called HeyCreator.com. Uh, it's called Hey Creator. You can go to HeyCreator.com. Very, very good show, guys. Be sure to check it out. Super yeah. fun. I, I, it's, a, it's a different kind of podcast, a seasonal podcast where each episode is kind of its own unique mm -hmm. piece. Um, and if you're interested in the book, uh, you can find it wherever books are sold and you can go to Don't Starve. The book is called Real Artists Don't Starve. You can go to don'tstarve.com and there's links to all the places and there's some bonuses. There's a there's an online course and like a little workbook where you get me sharing videos and, and doing wow. other cool stuff um, that, that accompanies the book. So there's some free bonuses at awesome. don't wow. for anybody who buys Very the book. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much guys go check it out everything will be in the show notes so be sure and head over there sharpenedartist.com slash podcast and whatever podcast number this is i have no idea what this is going to be but it'll be out there whatever number this is so appreciate you being here as a listener if you've not left a rating and or a review for the show we would appreciate that you can reach out to the show podcast at sharpenedartist.com and we'll talk to you again next time until then take care and stay sharp bye-bye